Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 22, and then chapter 7, verses 17, 18, and 23. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch, inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the earth will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose, rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. This is the word of the Lord. Noah's Ark is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and it always brings up a lot of different questions. You know, did God really wipe out the earth? Is the God of the Bible then really a God of love, or is he a God of just justice and judgment and wrath? There are four things we're going to learn today. One, the pain of God. Two, the violence of man. Three, the, the cure for sin 
And then lastly, how do we get it? How do we get that cure? How do we find shelter? The pain of God, the evil of man, the cure for sin, and how do we get that cure? First, we're gonna look at the pain of God. In verses five to six, and you see this in a mirror in verses 11 to 12, it says that God saw the wickedness of man, that every inclination of, the man, of man's heart was only evil all the time. And verse six says that the Lord grieved that he had created man, that he had made man, and his heart was filled with pain. Now, it's very interesting. I'm going to tell you why. In Genesis chapter one, God, what do you see God doing? He's creating. He's making. And after every day, he says, it's good. In other words, I'm deeply content. I'm satisfied. Day one, he, he creates light. And after the first day, he looks at what he created and he says, it was good. I'm satisfied. Day two and day three and day four. And after every day, he says, it was good. It was good. I'm satisfied. I'm content. But then you get to Genesis chapter three. When Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, there's a curse. God, makes, God utters a curse, and he says that through painful toil, you're going to work, and through painful toil you're going to work, you're going to create, you're going to make, you're now on your own, and what's left is there's going to be pain, there's going to be grief, sorrow. Before God makes, God creates, and he says, I'm satisfied. We were intended to be in that with God, and yet now after the fall, he says, you're going to work. You're going to create. You're going to make. You're going to work hard. You're going to sweat, and it's going to be dissatisfying for you. You're never going to be content. What does that tell you? Really interesting. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, what do you see? God says, I'm grieved. I'm no longer satisfied. Remember, the curse happened in Genesis 3. You get to Genesis 6, this chapter, he says, I'm grieved. I'm no longer satisfied. There's a curse here. I'm grieved that I created man. I'm grieved that I made man. There's pain in my life. What does that tell you? In Genesis 3, God says, you're going to work. You're going to experience sorrow and grief. That's the curse. But then here, God is experiencing grief. That means that here we are, and you look at the brokenness of the world, there's a curse. And yet, God is right here with us. In that curse, he's right here with us. He's suffering. He's grieving. His tears are being shed. It's his sweat. And, and he's in there, in our sweat, in our failures, in our tears, in our pain, in our curse. Why? I mean, that means that we've never been left alone. He's never left us. We left him, and yet he's never left us. God says, you're going to work. There's going to be lots of pain. One, there's pain. There's wrath. Not because God is a God of anger, but because he's a, God is love. God isn't just a God of love. God is love. That's what the Bible says. Well, then why the flood? I mean, it just seems like he's so angry. Why the wrath? Why, why the flood? Look at this. If you've ever loved somebody, now think about this. If you've ever loved somebody and you see them making every bad decision in their life, I mean, for some reason, it just hurts you. You just grieve over that. But it also angers you for some reason, doesn't it? It angers you. Why? Is it because you don't love? 
Is it because uh, now all of a sudden you've turned and you, you hate that person? No. The anger is not because you hate them. It's because you love them. If you've ever been hurt by somebody, you say, wow, I trusted this person. There's pain and there's wrath and there's even anger, not because you hated them, but because you love them. In fact, to the degree that you love them, there's anger. If you didn't love them that much, there's not a lot of anger. But if you love them to the core, if you love them deeply, if you tied your joy in with their joy, there's tremendous amount of anger. The pain and the wrath is proportional to your love for that person. And if that's the case for us, for finite creatures that have been created by God in his image, how much more then for an infinite God with infinite love for who he created? God is filled with pain. God is filled with grief. But secondly, it's also because God is our creator. We are his children. The Bible says that God is our lover. That's how much he loves us. What does that mean? God has voluntarily bound his joy with us. It's not because he's a needy person. But once he created us, he tied his joy with us so that when something goes wrong with us, there's pain and there's grief. A parent's love can still be very selfish. And we have many parents here. You understand what I mean when we say this. It's because part of our love, there's this need for fulfillment. You know, or because maybe that child is a, is a source of worth for us. And so it's never purely out of genuine love and, and care for that child. Part of it, we're hooked into it as a part of our own self-fulfillment or our own joy. Nothing, is, you can compare, nothing compares to God's love for his people. And yet, how do we respond to that love? How do we respond to God, our Father, this distrust and rebellion and disregard, and we blame God for our struggles? And he could have ended us right there. He could have, but instead, in verse 5, the Lord saw. He actually waited. Look at the patience of God. He saw how great our wickedness was, and he grieved, and he wept, in a sense. I mean, why did he let it happen at all? Why did he let sin or evil or sorrow happen at all? Whenever we ask this question, it's because we're thinking about evil and suffering from our perspective, from our vantage point. We say, well, there must be no good reason for this. Why would he let this happen at all? There must be no good reason. Look at all the evil and oppression and injustice. But think about this. Is it reasonable to say, I can't think of a good reason for this, so there must be no good reason? Is that even logical? That's a terrible logic. If we, if we believe that God is powerful enough to stop evil, to stop all evil in totality, to stop all injustice, and he knew all of this, but he still chose to suffer, then it must be because he's wise enough to let it continue. It must be because he's wise enough to let it continue. Look at the enduring Patient, long-suffering love of God. That's the pain of God. Secondly, we're going to look at the violence of man, the evil of man. In verses 7 and 13, again, they're mirrors in a sense. It says that because the earth is filled with evil, because the earth is filled with violence, I'm going to wipe out, I'm going to wipe mankind off in the face of the earth. That's what he says. That's the judgment of God. You know what that means? That means that God sees and is not happy with our, some of our life decisions. 
That means that God looks at, he sees, and he's not necessarily happy with our selfishness and our pride and our disobedience and our rebellion. If you believe, that God, if you believe that in God's judgment, it's going to create some problems for you. If you believe, yeah, God does have judgment, there is justice, it's going to create some problems for you. Philosophically, in the heart, most people read the narrative of Noah, Noah, they read this narrative of the flood, and they say, wow, I mean, that's really primitive thinking. I really don't like that. It's why I don't believe in the God of the Bible. It's why I left the church a long time ago. There's just so much anger and wrath and, 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 and death here. But I'm going to submit to you, then you have an even bigger problem with evil. Because think about this, without the judgment of God, without the justice of God, if God were to even let one sin go unaccounted for, Evil wins in the end. Sin prevails. Then either God is not all-powerful, he's not almighty because he can't stop evil, or he's not all-loving, he's not all-good to protect us from evil altogether because he chose not to. He's either not all-powerful or he's not all-loving. The reality is this, and it's a few things. One, evil and violence, it's not unnatural in our lives. I mean, we try so hard to shelter our children from evil, to shelter our children from violence. But the, very na- the nature of the fact is that evil and violence are not unnatural. They are very natural. By nature, big things, the way this world is set up, big things eat smaller things. Whether you're a microbe eaten by a worm, eaten by a fish, caught by a human and eaten by a human. So on what basis then can you say that any violence is unnatural, that any violence is wrong? How can you say, how can you say that rape is wrong? Unless there's something outside of nature, something that is above nature, transcends nature, something that is supernatural, telling you that it's wrong. If there is no God, then evil is natural. Then evil is natural. Two, evil is not, it's not just a physical thing. It's not just an emotional thing. It's not just a psychological thing. It goes much deeper than that. That means that every day, relationships and reputations and hopes and dreams, self-images that are not emotional or psychological, right? It goes much deeper than that. We are hooking our spiritual character, our souls into this thing. That means that every day, relationships and and reputations and hopes and dreams, self-images are just getting crushed and devoured. Our hearts are just getting broken over and over and over because it goes deeper. It's deeper than just our feelings. It's deeper than something that's spiritual, uh, physical. So three, evil is very practical. If you understand one and two, then three, evil is very practical. In some ways, it's even sensible. Why? What do I mean by that? When someone hurts you, you're deeply impacted by someone's evil against you. You can't just let it go. You can't just forgive that person. If you can easily forgive somebody, then it's either because you've never truly been violated or you've never truly loved. And that's why God can't just easily let it go. That's why God can't just easily just let things go. He is infinitely loving. He can't just let it go. It undermines his nature. There's judgment, justice, and love. Why? There's judgment because there's love. God is not just just and loving. He's just because he's loving. You understand that? Lastly, love, uh, lastly, evil is endless. 
unless you believe in a just God, unless you believe in the justice of God, if you've ever experienced violence, unless you believe that God himself is just, that he himself will take vengeance for you, unless one day you believe that he will make all the wrongs right, if you don't believe that, you will pick up your sword and you will get sucked into an endless cycle of violence yourself. Retaliation, and then obviously that's going to have retaliation back on you. It's just going to be an endless cycle of violence. So either the judgment of God is necessary, the justice of God is necessary, or else you have a much bigger problem with respect to evil, with respect to sin in the world, in life. So what's the cure? What's the cure for sin? What's the cure for this grieving? What's the cure for our evil? Now, we started by saying that God is love. So how can God be both loving as well as be just or a judge? And the answer is, ironically, it's the flood. It's the flood. The flood tells us that God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely just, and yet he's infinitely loving. He's infinitely good. The flood isn't the solution. You have to understand, you have to look at it differently. I don't know how you were taught when you were brought up and you were raised in the church, if you've been in the church, but the flood is not the solution. It looked like the solution, but it's not the solution. It's, it's really an emerging pattern that said, wait, remember, the book of Genesis is about beginnings. So what you're seeing is not the beginning of a pattern that God is setting off using to foreshadow the ultimate solution that God is going to apply. So the flood is not the judgment, but it's a pattern for the judgment that will come. What do I mean by that? Through the flood, we see God's pattern of judgment and salvation. In fact, you see judgment, you see salvation, I mean, through the judgment. So in verses 8 to 10, which mirrors verses 14 to 22, God has favor on Noah. God has favor on Noah and his family, and he places them into an ark. In verse 22, it says, Noah obeyed. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the, the author of Hebrews says this, very concisely, Noah was warned of things that he didn't see. He's talking about the storm and the waters and the evil and the judgment to wipe out evil. But in holy fear, Noah built the ark. In other words, what's the text saying? Noah believed God. He didn't just believe that God existed. He believed God, his word. He trusted God at his word. That's what you call holy fear. And as a result, Noah obeyed. In response, he obeyed. That's faith. Faith is not living in line with what you don't know. Faith is living in line with what you know. You may not know a whole lot, but you're going to live in line with it. Faith is the eyes to connect with God in a way that you can see a deeper reality beneath the visible reality. In other words, the gospel has to be more than just something that you receive because it's rational. It's got to be something you receive that it's more than you receive because, hey, it makes sense to me. It's got to go deeper than that. There's a visual, visible reality, and then there's a deeper reality beneath that. And you believe God. You don't just believe in God. You believe God. There's something more than that. Because when God warned Noah of things that weren't yet seen, that weren't yet visible, it shaped Noah's view of reality altogether. What he saw was the sun. What he saw was everything's okay. And yet God said, there's a storm coming. You ever watch uh, Batman? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Noah trusted God. His relationship with God changed him. And he responded to that. Verses 14 to 22 of chapter 6, Noah spends years 
building this ark in the sun. Why? Because he's living in line with God's word. People are persecuting him in a sense. They could have been persecuting him, mocking him, and yet he's living in line with God's word. Why? Noah's saying, I will not be defined by what I just see in the world. Not right now. I'm not going to be defined by what, what I see, what people are saying to me, the voices that are around me right now in the world. What about you? What do you see? What do you hear? What are you living in line with? What do you live in line with? As your, that makes up your understanding, how you process reality. Today, we're just consumed by images and voices that, that say, you gotta do whatever it takes. You gotta do, you gotta build. You gotta build a sense of worth. You gotta indulge. You gotta accumulate. You gotta, this is the time for you to do that. You gotta accumulate wealth. Shelter yourself around family and a good home and, and wonderful children. You gotta give them everything you've got. You gotta pour into all these things. That's how you escape trouble. When the storms of life come, that's how you escape trouble. Now think about this. If you are old enough, everyone here is old enough to understand this, most of the things, maybe even all the things that are most important to us in our lives, the things that you cannot do without, your health, love, you cannot purchase. You cannot build on your own. Think about it. You cannot purchase that. And yet we are, we are beguiled, in a sense, by images and voices that are around us that are telling you, this is the way to get there. And so what we're doing is we're doing, we're sheltering ourselves to protect us from the storm, to protect us from trouble. What's the result? We just do whatever it takes. We're just pouring in to get there. Whether you see real reality or not, everyone is building some kind of an ark right now to save themselves from something, from that storm. If career is your ark, then your role and your title and your salary, what you do is going to be the most important thing to you in a sense. And so if that's that important to you, it's going to be more important than other people's roles and what they do and how they advance. You've got to step over people to get there. You're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to sacrifice maybe your integrity at times to get there. You understand? If, if self-image is your arc, then you're going to do whatever you can to build your ego, to make sure to protect that ego of yours, to save face, to save your reputation. If parenting is your arc, then you're going to coddle your children. You're going to hover over your children. There's this envy and competition between your children and other families and god forbid anything happens to your children god forbid your children fall behind you will experience maybe they experience injustice in your in their lives they will experience your wrath you see that what do you see here in the end whether it's your career or your self-image or your children or, these are all good things and yet when they become your ark there's evil and violence you will do whatever it takes to protect your own. You know why? I mean, Ernest Becker, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Recently, one of his probably most famous book was out of print for a long time. It recently came back into print. It's interesting because now in our culture and our generation today, these older books that have been written by scholars and commentators now coming back in print because people are looking for an answer and they're looking to these men who've won awards commentating on this already. What he said was that we're all dealing with the reality of the one day it's all going to be over. One day it's all going to come to end. 
life, the world, everything, it's going to come to an end, which means life in many ways is meaningless, and we're all coping with that. We're trying to escape that. We're trying to escape that. That is a distraction, and we're trying to escape that in some ways, and so what do we do? We just cling to, and he, chapter by chapter, he lays out all the different ways we cling to other things. He's a secular man, and yet that's his observation of the world. The Bible says that anything that the world offers as your salvation, the ark, is an ark. And it's going to ultimately lead then, apart from God, leads to evil and violence. But here's the thing. God is telling Noah this. Man is everything evil all the time. There's a storm coming. And when that real storm comes, that ultimate storm, you're going to sink because none of those arcs that we hook into, that we shelter ourselves in, are adequate enough to save you from this storm. That's the judgment. In other words, I'll say it this way. We never get thrown. We never get thrown to the judgment of God. We choose judgment over and over and over, how you process reality right now, the way you process the visible reality today, we just get driven to build arcs to shelter us from the storm that's coming. We're trying to cope with reality, the reality that maybe it's all going to come to an end or maybe our lives could come to an end, so we just shelter ourselves. We choose over and over, apart from God, to hook into other arcs, to build other arcs in our lives to save us. And God is telling Noah they're going to sink. None of them are adequate to save. That's the judgment. Over and over, we choose judgment until we drown because we have chosen to live despite God telling us through his word that there is a deeper, a real reality beneath the visible reality we have chosen to hook into the visible reality. So we develop this kind of spiritual myopia, a nearsightedness, and that nearsightedness says, man, we've got to build. I've got to build my life, this present life that I'm living in. In chapter 7, Noah and his family, they enter into this ark. They obeyed. They obeyed. In Hebrews chapter 11, again, the author says, Noah, as a result, he became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. What does that mean? Everywhere around him, they're being shaped by sin, reacting to evil, perpetrating evil, thinking and intending evil, but Noah is shaped by God's thoughts, by God's view of reality, his relationship with God. So the last point is then, how do you find shelter from the storm? How do you get this cure from sin, from evil, from violence? The Bible says, well, you can't earn it. You can only receive it. Noah was an heir to the righteousness that comes only by faith. What's it mean to be an heir? It means that somebody else gives it to you. You are someone who receives when you are an heir. You are receiving righteousness. You don't work for it. You can't work for it. That's what the Bible's trying to tell us. It only comes through relationship. To be an heir of anything, you have to be related, connected to this person. Children are every bit as wealthy as their parents because they are united with them. United to them in a sense. And so Noah becomes an heir 
to the righteousness of God that you can only receive. He received the wealth of God's love. He received the wealth of God's favor. How did he do it? It was through God's suffering. It was through God's grief. Religion says this. Religion says, a lot of us, we, we're in the church, we've grown up in the church, and we thought we were believers. But we're really just religious people. Religion says this, you gotta work. You gotta earn that righteousness. You gotta work hard for it. You gotta take it for yourself. Righteousness, to define it simply, is the currency is the currency that's exchanged in our approval with God. So righteousness is synonymous with being approved by God. How do you get approved by God? We said we got to serve. You got to plug in. That's why we plug in. We plug in because we have to serve. You got to work. You got to show people and show God. You have to receive and earn their approval and thus receive and earn. It's gonna, for those of us who succeed in that, it feels great in that moment because you're being praised by people because that's what you're working for. You see, that's what you're trying to earn. A lot of us, we don't even turn to the church for that. We turn to work for that. Every promotion, every bonus, it is, it is, a, it is a sign or a measure of your sense of worth. That's what we're doing, you see. Religion says you've got to earn that. That's how you're saved. But don't you see that you're just trying to build another ark through your goodness. You're just trying to build another ark through your abilities and your skills and your service and, and your capacities. Because if you have to earn it, in the end, you're still, I mean, what happens in the church? I've seen churches being torn apart. Why? There's jealousy and envy and strife and fighting. What? What do you see through that? There's the violence. There's the evil still. The gospel, on the other hand, teaches that you can't earn it. Only by faith in Jesus Christ can you receive Righteousness. Faith in Jesus Christ, it gives righteousness to you. You receive it. By the way, that's why we envy people who are popular or good-looking. That's why we envy people who have wealth or we covet, you know, maybe uh, a skill or, or a, a nat- the nature of intelligence that a person may have. It's because these are arcs that we hook into, that we shelter, that we hide behind. They can offer us a sense, a taste of righteousness because you get approval through that. But it leads to pride and envy and comparisons and competition and fighting. That's the violence. It, comes all, it all comes right back. But if you are an heir because you are related to Jesus, there's a union. There's a union. You are every bit then as loved and honored and glorious and rich as Jesus is. You receive it through him. And that fills you because it's something you didn't deserve, because it's something you couldn't earn. It humbles you. It fills you with gratitude because you know you didn't deserve that. If you deserved it, you wouldn't be humble. Noah and his family, they enter into the ark. They hide in the ark. So you can imagine the image of these, the storm coming and the waves crashing against the ark. And Noah and his family are hiding in the ark. And the waves are breaking against the wood. And you hear the, the, the ark creaking as it sails, and yet they're utterly safe. 
They're navigating around the world and they're utterly safe. They're able to hide in it. Noah trusted God. God didn't come to Noah because he obeyed. Noah obeyed because God came to Noah. That's the meaning of chapter 6, verses 14 to 22 in a sense. Think about this. You go to a doctor and the doctor says, look, I'm going to tell it to you straight. You have a tumor. It's going to require some deep, deep surgery. But in the end, you're going to be okay. Just trust me. And you listen to him. You say, I trust you. But then what happens? You get prepped. You ever been through surgery? Maybe a procedure? You go into the prep room, and they eventually just take you into the operating room. What do you see? It's white, and it's sterile, and it's cold, and you are exposed. You are vulnerable. You are naked. That table, they start to strap you down. And there's all these people kind of hovering around you and checking things and poking you with things. There's needles. There's lots of poking. And then there's that smell, that horrid smell. And all the people who are involved and whispering and talking to each other, it's serious. They're talking serious stuff. And you're just kind of looking around, and then you see all the tools that are being laid out. Some of them are sharp, super sharp. And, and what happens? There's fear. You start to second-guess yourself. Did I make the right decision? Can I delay this? Could I have delayed this? That's the storm. Should I have trusted the doctor? He's telling me that if I don't do this, I'm going to die. That's the visible reality. That's what you're hearing. But that's when you have to trust the doctor most, not less. You have to trust him more. Because the real horror is not the tools. The real horror is not the doctor working on you. The real horror is not the nurses and all the people around you talking to each other. The real horror is what's going on inside. There is something that needs to be ended inside. And the doctor is promising that he will take it out. That's what's killing you. So when you don't want to give up on that one relationship, that one relationship that you're just working on and working on. You don't want to give it up because that person right now is just everything to you. And so you pour everything into that relationship and then they break up with you. What happens? What does that feel? You feel like you've died. There's a violence there. Well, I mean, pastor, that sounds awfully dramatic. Really? These are souls that are being ripped apart. It feels like death when you're going through it. It's always going to be dramatic. That's the storm. That's a storm. That's the operating room. And when we're there, we don't want to trust God in our storms. We say, but I wanted this, and and I, I prayed for this, and I needed this, and I trusted you to help me in this. Why? Because you only saw and you only see the visible reality. You only see what's visible. And essentially what happens, when you only see the visible reality, you come to God, not for God, you come to God for things. You pray to God for things. You don't really come to God for God when it's really God that you needed more of. Why does God bring the flood? There are three major themes throughout the the Bible. One is uh, the end of sin. This temporarily in Genesis stops the evil for a moment. It's like a pause. It stops human violence. And so what God is doing here is he's setting a pattern 
In verses 11 and 12, he says, they're corrupted. That's what you're reading in the Bible. In the literal Hebrew, Hebrew, it's they've corrupted themselves. If you want to give more literal with the nuances of what he's saying, he's saying they've destroyed themselves with their own corruption. God is saying this is killing you. You are killing yourselves, and I'm going to end this self-destruction that's already taking place. I'm going to destroy the people who have already destroyed themselves. In other words, God is doing already, very in one instant, what we're already doing to ourselves over time. And God's putting a, a setting forth a pattern that shows us how sin will be ended once and for all. Number two, why does God bring the flood? There's salvation. The meaning of the flood is this. That same water that sinks everyone else and every other living thing is actually lifting the ark. The same water that's killing everybody else in the world is actually saving Noah's family. You see that? And so there God has intruded into the life of Noah, supernaturally intruded into his life to lift the ark through these waters of judgment so that that same judgment, through that judgment, we see salvation. He saves Noah. God worked through the judgment and the water and the rain and the death to bring about salvation. He's setting another pattern. Three, I mean, why didn't God just get rid of the world and start over? I mean, why did he bring the flood? I mean, so dramatic. God is committed to you. He's still committed to what he's created. He's never given up. And so he salvages this remnant. We see that pattern all through the Bible. He's still committed to the world, and through that remnant, he will restore the world once, once and for all. At the end of the Bible, Jesus says that, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. He doesn't say at the end of the Bible, behold, I'm going to make all new things. I'm going to start everything over. He actually says, what I'm going to do is I'm working through the brokenness. Is there brokenness in your life today? I'm working through the doubts and the fears and the sin and the evil. I'm working through all the self-righteousness and the pride and your envy and your coveting. I'm working through all this, and I'm going to make you new through it. Yes, there's evil. Yes, there's violence. Yes, there's brokenness. But through the death, there will be new life. Judgment came through grace, and yet that grace came through judgment, and yet it's still not complete. The first thing that Noah did after the flood, it's not in your text, but if you continue to read the Bible, you'll see that. The first thing that Noah did after the flood, he gets completely drunk, and he just messes up his family. So God doesn't allow the flood of judgment to end sin once and for all. It is a foreshadowing of what's to come. He's establishing a pattern for the ultimate judgment of how he's going to deal with sin and end sin once and for all. And you see this throughout the Bible through this other motif that you see here that began with Noah. It's through storms. I'm going to give you an example. You have Jonah. Jonah is one of the minor prophetic books in the Bible. Jonah's on a boat, and there's this huge storm. And he plunges himself into the storm, and he's swallowed by this giant fish, And there he cries out, all your waves and billows have come over me. All the waves and breakers have come over me. I'm cast out of your presence. That's what he prays. Centuries later, there'll be another storm. In John chapter 6, Jesus Christ and his disciples, Jesus Christ's disciples, they're on a boat. And many of these men, fishermen, 
They're on a boat, and the waters start to get rough. There's a storm. But they see Jesus, and he's walking on water. Look at the control and the command of Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? Someone greater than Jonah is now here. What does that mean? When Noah builds the ark, God tells him in verse 14 to use a certain kind of wood. I believe uh, our reader today read that it was cypress wood, but the Hebrew word for that wood, for that, the Hebrew word for that word, wood, is the word eights. Eights. Throughout the Old Testament, that word eights means wood. It's not the only word that means wood. But this word is almost always used in the context of God's judgment. All the way to the New Testament, all the way through the Bible, whenever you see the word eights come up, it comes up. It, it comes up in the context of God's judgment, all the way to the New Testament. That word translated then in the Greek, later in, I guess in the Latin too, is to mean the cross. All the way to the cross. What does that mean? Noah was saved because he hid in the wood. He hid in the ark. That ark, the wood, represented God's judgment towards sin and the salvation through that judgment for God's people. Well, then what about us? How do we receive that salvation? We are saved because we hide in Jesus Christ, our ark, the true ark, who is nailed to the wood, the cross, God's ultimate judgment, the cross. Like the ark, the cross represented judgment for the unbelieving, and yet through that judgment, Jesus Christ was judged in that wood. And yet those of us who hide in the wood, it represents salvation for all who believe. And God worked through Jesus Christ's ultimate brokenness. I mean, on the cross, people are standing there looking at him. What good? I mean, he's really God. What good could come from this? What is he trying to show us? What is he trying to prove to us here? Come down if you're God. What good can come from what you're doing up on the cross? And yet, God was working through Jesus' ultimate brokenness, the brokenness of the cross, to bring about the ultimate renewal, the ultimate salvation. We just receive it. There's a passage we're going to be looking at several weeks from now. And, you know, it says uh, there's a part of it where, where Moses lifts up uh, this, this bronze snake because all these people are dying. And he says, just look at the snake. Just look at it. And if you look at it, you're saved. How much work does it take to look at something? Here's the answer. It takes no work to look at anything. You just see. It takes no work. We just receive as heirs of Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we're hiding in the ark, in him we become the righteousness of God. The same way that Noah was given a warning, the same way that he received the ark, we have God's word and we receive Christ. We receive the Christ and, and his cross, and we get to hide behind the cross. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm cast out of God's presence. The same way that he says, I'm the greater Jonah. Jonah said, all your waves and breakers are, are crashing against me, and I'm cast out of your presence. But in actuality, Jonah was saved. Jonah was released. 
Here, Jesus no longer walking on water. He's saying on the cross, all your waves, the waves of your wrath are breaking up against me and I'm just overwhelmed by the storm of your judgment. And so Jesus Christ, he suffers the violence, the ultimate violence, the injustice, the ultimate injustice. He is innocent, free of sin, and yet he was arrested and beaten and humiliated and crucified on a cross, but on the cross, he experienced the ultimate violence because on the cross now, the wave after wave, you see God's wrath, the fullness of God's wrath, and he was naked so that he could receive it unmediated by even a a piece of cloth. He receives every bit of God's wrath. You can imagine standing against that storm. Believe it or not, it got dark. It says in the Bible literally that as he was hanging on the cross, the skies grew dark and the earth, there was an earthquake. There was a real storm physically in his life. There was, his body was experiencing a storm. He's being pierced and pelted and yet the real storm, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The real storm was the wave after wave of God's wrath pelting Jesus. And he's saying, more, more, more. Give me all of it. And he absorbs it all. And he takes it all. Literally, we get broken up because souls get ripped apart when we break up with somebody. Jesus Christ says, my, my soul is overwhelmed. He says it in Gethsemane. And now on the cross, you have forsaken me. My God, my God, you have forsaken me. It's the one time in the, cro- in the Bible, in the Gospels, where Jesus Christ doesn't refer to God as his father because his soul is being ripped apart. The Trinity forensically being torn apart. Father departing from the Son. And he receives it all on our behalf. And then he died. So yes, God is committed to justice. Our sins on the cross, not even one sin goes unaccounted for. But God is also committed to suffering and sacrificial and grieving love. Jesus Christ died so that we would be redeemed. Jesus Christ was just completely broken up so that we could be restored. Jesus Christ on the cross gave up his sonship. He was an heir, the ultimate heir, so that we could become heirs of his righteousness. Friends, there's a storm coming. And everything and everyone is going to sink. Do you see that? What is your view of reality? Do you see the real reality beneath the visible reality? Will your ark save you? Wealth building and career building and family building. I mean, we are just inundated with waves and waves of images and voices telling us that that's the way to be saved. That's the way to shelter yourself. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Only Jesus Christ can lift you from the ways of God's wrath. So that you receive what is freely offered to you by his death. There's an old children's song, lots of children's songs, deep meaning. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Smile at the storm smile at the storm with Christ in my vessel I can smile at the storm 
until he guides me home. Let's pray together.